9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hi, and welcome to a special edition of Deep State Radio, one of our special book podcasts where we're getting to sit down with some of the leading authors of big books uh, these days. And... We are very pleased to be joined by Michael Schmidt, two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning Washington correspondent for the New York Times, uh, who has a new book out called Donald Trump versus the United States, Inside the Struggle to Stop a President. Um, and you know there, there are about 1,200 books that have been published on Trump and, uh, and the Trump era, and there is no reason to own or read all of them, but some of them you need to own and you need to read. And I am very confident that Michael's book, which is really excellent and breaks a lot of new ground, uh, is one of those books that is a a must read and a must have. So thanks very much for joining us here today, Michael. Thanks for having me. So the book focuses on a number of elements of the Trump-Russia case, which you have been uh, one of the leading journalists covering, and and you focused on, uh, in particular, James Comey and uh, White House Counsel Don McGahn and the, the 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 obstruction that that occurred in and around um, Trump and this case. Um, I'd like to start at a kind of thirty-five thousand foot question. You know, talking to you about this, reading your book about this yesterday, we had did a podcast with Peter Strzok. I just read his book about this. Obviously, I've read a bunch of the others. You can't help but come away thinking that what this entire episode has proven is that if a president has a compliant DOJ and is with the majority party in the Senate, then he actually is above the law. You know, this basic principle that we were founded on as a country, which was that no one is above the law, um, isn't actually true. Because the obstruction works, the obstacles work. There don't seem to be consequences. You've been immersed in this. What's your view on that? So, in terms of the question of whether the president is above the law, I'm going to leave that question up to the reader and the viewer and the listener because it's such a heady one. But what I will say is that I think we've seen the government tested in ways that if we sat in a constitutional law class, we probably could not have come up with. And if you sat down with the founders, I don't think they would have come up with this scenario either. And I think that the system has not reacted the way that conventionally, pre-2016, we would think that it would. I think that the anticipation was that Congress would be more of a check on the president, even if Congress was controlled by the party that the president is in. And so I think we've seen the system react in ways that we didn't think it would. 
And I think it, in what I will say that, I'm, that I feel confident about, that I feel confident waiting it on, is that I think we've seen that we are much more of a country of norms than we are of a country of laws. And that the adherence to norms, if you are willing to deviate from norms, you can do a lot of things that we didn't think that a president could do. And I think that for me has been an enlightening, I don't know if the word enlightening, it has been a discovery of watching this story. Well, you know, it's an interesting point. And that, you know, a lot of the things that govern behaviors are uh, cultural norms um, uh, 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 and other factors that, 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 that create a, a kind of work, workplace culture. Um, it was interesting talking to Peter Strzok yesterday because he was talking about the early stages of the investigation. And one of the things that he said was, you know, they decided not to focus on the president because it would be too complicated. It was too difficult in the context of the system. They would focus on everybody around him uh, and not. And so there's a bias there. And it, it seems a little bit that Mueller had some of that bias. But, but there is elsewhere in this White House and within the broader uh, executive branch, there is a kind of cultural message that's been sent by the president and those around him, which is stay off of Russia, don't investigate. If you do pursue this stuff, you're going to fall out of favor with the president. Um, this is toxic. You know, don't cross this line. And that has led to some things, including, you know, in the context of your book, you know, uh, the, 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 the guidance given by Rosenstein to Mueller, you know, don't, which, which led to, you know, no real investigation in the finances uh, and uh, no real uh, counter intel investigation. Do, do you think that the Rosenstein was influenced by this, this Trumpian culture of this is a bad place to go? Or do you think it's more him as an institutionalist and buying into this notion that we need to just simply be very circumspect and uh, limited in what we do with regard to a president? Look, I don't know what is in Rosenstein's head or is in the head of those who made decisions, but I think it's actually simpler. And I think that the problem here is that the president has spoken openly about these investigations and about what he thinks about them and what he wants done with them. And he's done that in private to the people who run the Justice Department, whether it's starting with Jim Comey and going through the folks that are still there today. And because of that, the just simple perception of the president wading in, even with his opinion, about these investigations, it casts a cloud over everything that comes out of the Justice Department. Because everything that comes out, you wonder, well, they're Trump political appointees. Why are they doing it? Are they doing it to please the president? We know how the president views it. In the book, I write about this, this advice and guidance and counsel that the White House counsel, Don McGahn, gave to Trump in the spring of 2018. And this is about how Trump wanted to prosecute Clinton and Comey himself. 
And McGahn says to him, he says, if you even appear to be meddling in the Justice Department's work, you could suffer immense consequences. You could be voted out of office. You could be impeached. The courts could throw cases out. People could quit at the Justice Department. You're not going to be successful in doing this. So just stop it and knock it off. And the funny thing is, is that McGahn's guidance in a conventional world is probably right. But Trump just ignored it and continued to do those things, continues to do those things up until today. And the simple fact that the president has been so open about his desires and the fact that the attorney general has also been so open about what he thinks of investigations and what he thinks of ongoing investigations like the Durham investigation, the investigation into the roots of the Russia uh, crossfire hurricane investigation. The, the waiting in with opinion about those investigations before they're done already classic casts a cloud over their results. And as I write in the book, the Justice Department was almost as obsessed with keeping politics out of the perception of their work as they were with their work in the years after Watergate. And that norm is for the moment gone. How, how much do you think things have changed post bar? I think that in enormous ways, they've changed significantly. You had the two most important cases in the public's mind to arise from the Mueller investigation was the prosecution of Roger Stone and the sentencing of Mike Flynn, the former national security advisor. And what happened was, is that Mueller left before those two things were done. And what that allowed to happen is it allowed the perception of politics to come in and erode both of those cases. Because Barr came in and changed the sentencing on Stone. And then Barr went to court and had the Flynn investigation. Essentially, he, he asked the judge to end the Flynn investigation to throw out the case. If Mueller had been there, one, I think it would have been more difficult for Barr to do, although Barr does seem difficult to deter. And two, the fact that Mueller was not there and that Barr was able to wade into these cases and do these things. And let's just for the sake of this argument say maybe Barr was right. I mean, I, 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 you know, I'll leave that up to folks to draw their own conclusion on, but for the sake of this argument, let's say Barr was right. If Barr was right, that's But because Barr has been so open about the Russia investigation and because he has so aligned himself with the president, it has completely eroded the perception of politics in those two cases. And if you believe in the pre-2016 convention that politics needs to be out of criminal investigations, something that I thought was a central tenant and norm of the post-Watergate era and something that I think people really took seriously, then, then that is gone for the moment. And that's why you have the perception of politics in these cases. Yeah, but, you know, one of the things that I think is lost in all of this is I think around the time that the Mueller report came out, it was reported that there were something like a dozen other cases uh, that were being explored by U.S. attorneys. And they seem to have disappeared without a trace. Some of them we know about, you know, the, 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 the case in the Southern District of New York into the leaks surrounding 
uh, the FBI office during the 2016. But, but let me interrupt. But, but let me interrupt. Here's the thing, okay? We can go through all these cases and we could say, look, you know, we thought there were all these cases. They farmed all these things out. And where did they go? Maybe on the merits, those cases were not worthy of pursuing. Maybe, maybe they were made by career prosecutors. But the fact that the president has been so open about how he views these investigations and the fact that Barr has done that as well allows you to sit there and have no, you have no idea what happened with these cases. And you say, well, what happened with these cases? Because you don't trust the Justice Department. You do not trust in asking that question, the results of the Justice Department to pursue a non-political fact-based investigation. That is inherent in the question you're asking. Am I right? Oh, of course you're right. Of course you're right. And, and, and part of the reason that um, you know, the questions linger is that we know some of the facts. We don't know all of the facts. Um, and you know, we know that you know, Comey was worried about leaks out of the FBI office there. We know that Rudy Giuliani was involved with it to some extent. Investigation has just disappeared. Well, let me, let me talk to, about another one of them. Uh, in the Woodward book, uh, he has quotes, uh, a quote from Dan Coats saying he wondered what the Russians had on Trump. Um, and that seems to be, the, you know, the central question here. The, the, the Trump-Russia case is arguably the biggest scandal in the history of the presidency. Uh, it is certainly the biggest, highest level espionage uh, scandal uh, in, in U.S. history. Uh, and at the center of it is, what are Trump's ties to the Russians? And yet, in, you, in your book um, and, and in what we see elsewhere, that part of it, like what were his financial ties to the Russians, seems to have been cut out of the picture. Now, you got a lot of flack after the book came out for having reported that, but uh, it seems like it's, 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 it's stood up. How can, you know, um, how, how can people, how do people defend doing an investigation into Trump without doing an investigation into who has leverage over him? Look, 400 pages in the Mueller report, there's nothing there on it. The only thing that we have on it from an official body is from the Senate Intelligence Committee, which put out their report, I guess it was, it was uh, last month. And in there, they explore what compromise the Russians may have on Trump. And that is the closest we can. And with all due respect to the Senate Intelligence Committee, which I think is probably the most above board, um, you know, bipartisan committee to look at this issue, they're largely reliant on the intelligence community and interviews they can do themselves and subpoenas they can issue. But they're not walking around with badges and guns and the powers of wiretapping and of intercepts and of tasking the intelligence community. And that's the closest that the public has to this, is that accounting. And I think that if you are a citizen and you're concerned about Trump's connections to Russia, that's just, that's not a lot. That's not a full accounting of it. And it only provides so much of a picture. And it still remains the greatest unanswered question of the Trump administration. Why is it that the president behaves the way he does towards Russia? And 
I think it'll be a question that we will chip away at for years and decades and decades to come. As a reporter covering this stuff, don't you think it's kind of extraordinary? This is just a sidebar, but that the Coates comment, this is that a former Republican senator from Indiana who was the president's director of national intelligence said, I wonder what the Russians have on the president. I mean, it's kind of an amazing statement. And if you look at the past week, it's like headline number 32. You know, this, this stuff doesn't even really resonate anymore, even though, you know, the, the prospect of a president who is disloyal or compromised would seem to be, you know, of historical significance, not just news significance. Yeah. And to me, like he's just one of many people who have said that. You know, I think Jim Comey had the same questions. I think that many other people that were around the president throughout those first two to three years of the administration had those questions. And to me, when you're saying it's like, oh, I can't believe he said that. I'm like, well, he's just one of many people that said it. You know, it's just one of many people that were, unlike us, in the room with the president when these decisions were being made and do not trust why the president was making those decisions. And as I write in the book, the containers of Trump, you know, the Comeys or the Kellys or the McGanns of the world were never sure, in, 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 especially with McGahn, it's broader than just Russia, but whether Trump was acting out of his ego, whether Trump was acting out of his family businesses, whether Trump was acting out of spite, like what, you know, whether Trump was acting out of Russia, like what was it that was truly motivating Trump to behave the way that he did, not only towards Russia, but to the Mueller investigation? So why was it that he was so steadfast against this? Is it simply just how the president reacts and behaves and this was an existential threat and that's how he came up? Or was there something more there? And I don't think we have an answer to that. You know, speaking of motivations, one of the things that's interesting in your book is you see McGahn, I don't know, I may, I don't know, maybe I was projecting something onto it, but sort of saw McGahn as kind of a tortured character uh, because he did have some principles. He did have some uh, sense of the role of the president and what was right and what was wrong. And it seemed that he made a deal with the devil. Maybe, maybe he and McConnell and some of the other Republicans did. And that was a deal in which, um, as long as they were getting judges, they're okay with this because their mission was to remake the judiciary. And so it was kind of a quid pro quo. Is that oversimplification? I don't know if it's a quid pro quo, but I think that McGahn came to the Trump presidency, the Trump trough, and walked away with the greatest prize. And that was a remade federal judiciary. And he was willing to put up with a lot of things that he had to hold his nose about in order to do that. And McGahn, I think, believed in the judges more than Trump did. I think that McGahn believes in Trumpism more than Trump does. And McGahn knew he had a never and again opportunity to do this. He had wide open federal courts, he had a president who was going to allow him to essentially be a committee of one and bring the judges to him. And by the spring of 2018, 
McGahn's lawyer is saying to him, look, you got to get out of here. The Mueller report's going to come out. Trump's going to see all this stuff that you said. You got to go. And McGahn believes he can hear in Kennedy's voice from the oral arguments coming out of the court that Kennedy may retire. And McGahn says, I need to stay here because I don't think he'll, because I don't think Kennedy will retire if I leave because he doesn't trust that Trump won't put a wrecking ball, a Fox News analyst, a Rudy Giuliani on the court to fill the position. So McGahn basically says, this is excruciating. McGahn's got Mueller's asking questions. Mueller's team's asking questions about, you know, real-time information and, and such. And it's, McGahn's got all this, this bad stuff going on. He says, if I can just stay through the end of the term, maybe I'll get another shot at the court. And he stays. And he does. So he makes this great heroic stand to give us Kavanaugh. I mean, that's that's, uh, quite a... I thought it was one of the more remarkable things that I had. And sometimes as a reporter, you figure out things that you think are more remarkable because they're more difficult or because they give you insight that you didn't think you had before that don't always translate. But the idea that McGahn, sort of being a masochist, stayed through this stuff that he knew he had basically lost control over in order to get Kavanaugh is just to me, and I, I, I use this word too much, um, because it's, it's, I just, I don't know, I just don't have any other, I have a small vocabulary, but it's just remarkable. It's just remarkable. But, you know, it's, it's, I have to say, the other thing that one comes away with is, Calculus worked out pretty well. Kavanaugh's there. McGahn has managed to avoid having to testify. And all those obstruction charges, and you know, you read the Mueller report, the bid on obstruction is is as close to an open and shut case as there is. You know, I mean there's there's a dozen charges, they're all substantiated. Uh, it seems very clear. They're just floating in the ether. Nope, nobody's, you know, they're, they're, nothing, nothing, nothing has happened with them. Um, and so, you know, his calculus seems to have been, seems to have been pretty good. So far, no consequences. If McGahn can come away with this without having to testify, and he can not have to testify and not draw the president's ire and go off and conduct his law practice and build his law practice, basically the second half of his career, he's in his late 40s, then he will have accomplished this incredible tightrope where he was essentially the chief witness against his client as a lawyer in an, ex- in an existential threat to the presidency. And he did that, didn't get into legal trouble himself, which I think is important because so many people around the president have gotten into legal trouble because of their association with the president, because it draws attention to them. So he'll walk away with no criminal problem, a remade federal courts, and not having to testify. He will have had it many different ways. And I, you know, I, I just, I think it's, um, it was a very, very, very tightrope thing. And him and his lawyer, Bill Burke, somehow figured out to get him at least to this point 
where he has navigated it to, you know, without real damage to himself. So you're a reporter and your job is not to predict the future, nor is it to, um, you know, to take a political stand on these things. But what do you think a second Trump term might mean to this story? In other words, do you think as a, as a reporter that this will be, you know, lead to more bearing of evidence, that there will be more obstruction, that, you know, if, if Trump has four more years with this, um, he may put it all beyond the reach of future prosecution? I don't know. I think that we have seen the system, you know, Trump essentially triumph over the system and the system failed to contain Trump. So I would only assume that we would see more of that and him be more emboldened. Um, He has seemed unable to go on the offensive in ways that I think he wants to. If you look at his meddling in the Justice Department's work, it's largely obstructive acts. It's trying to protect himself, throw sand in the gears of investigations, have loyalists oversee them, sort of protective measures, not downplaying them, but they are in much more of a defensive crouch. His attempts to go on the offensive and be proactive with his power have been less successful. Wanted Andy McCabe prosecuted, McCabe wasn't prosecuted. Wanted to prosecute Clinton and Comey himself, McGahn basically stopped him from doing that. Tried to pull a similar thing with Sessions, Sessions wouldn't do it. So the question is, is that can Trump take his power and really go after his rivals in ways that are beyond tweets and beyond casting sort of clouds over these people? Could he get the Justice Department to prosecute one of them? And I think that remains to be seen. I think that would be sort of the next, I'm not going to say ultimate test, because I think we've seen a lot of ultimate tests, but the next test that Trump would put on the system. How would the courts react? Um, How would the Republicans react? Um, You know, it would bring the judiciary into it in a way that would be different, I think, than what we've seen so far. Yeah, well, it's interesting because there was a kind of a mix of the people around him. There were enablers, family and and yes men, and and then there were guardrails. McGahn was a guardrail. Kelly may have been a guardrail on some things. Mattis may have been a guardrail on some things. Tillerson may have been a guardrail on some things. McMaster may have been a guardrail. We can go and make a list. The guardrails are all gone. You look out to the future, you may see you you you, you may see a you know a different outcome as you end up with more empowered enablers like Barr. Well, without speculating on that, we only got a couple minutes left. And and w- one thing that struck me as as reading it. The, the the book is it's not just telling the story of the Trump Russia case. It's also sort of telling the story of the evolution of the culture within the the, the White House and the president's leadership uh, style as he learned how to be a president, what was entailed in being a president. Um, and I was just curious in the last minute or two that we've got as somebody who is immersed in the Russia case, where have you seen the resonances between that case and the COVID response? I mean, here's the big crisis. And there's some that are apparent, telling truth or not telling the truth, spinning it one way or not. But I'm just wondering, 
do 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 you do see sort of similarities between the two that are going to go down in history because these are kind of the two defining crises or or tests of trump what what are the 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 parallels or connections i think that i haven't thought about that it's an interesting question i think that you see the president trying to shout his way out of both of them he's going to sort of as people say tweet his way out of them and i think he tried that with the virus in similar ways to how he did with the Mueller investigation and he found that and that was clearly ineffective and i think has paid some political consequence for that um so i think that he sort of has like one mode and that one mode was to go completely crazy offensive against Mueller. And I think he tried to do that with COVID and we've seen the results of that. That is the consistency that I see between them. The thing that I always was, was just kind of wondering as the presidency went on was what was gonna happen when there was a real crisis that wasn't self-imposed. I'm not diminishing any of the behavior he did in the first few years, but a lot of what he got himself into were things that he did himself. Now, many will say that his response to COVID, that, that was his response. But the actual, I, I think, existence of the virus was something that he was really going to have to tackle like, I guess, a normal president would confront, confront a, a major crisis. And I always wondered when it was going to come. And I think we finally saw it. We finally saw sort of the ultimate test of him. And that may ultimately play a very damaging political price for him as he tries to win re-election. Very interesting. Look, I know you've been really busy going around, promoting the book, reporting, doing your day job, and we are really grateful that you could find the time to spend with us. As I said at the outset uh, to our listeners, you know, there, there are a few books that are must-reads and must-haves. Michael Schmidt's book, Donald Trump versus the United States, Inside the Struggle to Stop a President is one that's both. I encourage you to get it. It's a great book. It's a great read. Um, and uh, it's part of the evolving history of this uh, time, as has been all of your reporting, which you know I think has, has been essential to understanding what's going on, or at least trying to. Uh, so I want to thank you, Michael, for joining us. I want to thank everybody out there for joining us. Uh, if you want to find out more, as we have uh, in the next few weeks, really expanded uh, coverage and multiple podcasts each week, go to the dsrnetwork.com. And if you feel so inclined, uh, click on membership and offer us some support. Uh, in the meantime, go out and get Michael's book. Uh, thanks, Michael. Bye-bye, everybody.